Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Part of it for me, it just comes back to this question. And I think one of the reasons we sort of have a common language is we're both come from this third culture. Like, who am I? What am I? Is not a straightforward question. The word that I use from a racial context now is Chicana, because I think it both holds that I'm mixed, so I'm native and white, but also Latinx, specifically in the American context. And that matters because had I been born, let's say, in Mexico City, I would basically be white, right? Because of their but because of the U.S. dynamics around race, I just like, and we know that whiteness is inherently, quote, I, I hate to call it a pure construct, but like it constructs itself that way. And so I've always never, when someone says like, you're white, I'm like, eh, it's not quite correct. Like, am I white assumed, white passing? Do I have white privilege? Yes. Do I benefit from white supremacy? Yes. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Aubrey. Now there's something I always like to say. And that is this, we live in a world of nuance, governed by binary systems. We live in a world of nuance, governed by binary systems. Aubrey is the personification of this saying. She lives outside of the binary, which I'm sure many of us do, but it's also something that she's translated into a professional career. And her ability to translate her personal experiences into professional experience and vice versa is something that I love, admire, and want for everyone to be able to do. In addition to this, what I admire about Aubrey is her ability to give language to so many complex things that are happening in our world today. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you feel the permission that you should already have to just be yourself regardless of what some archaic system says. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is a very new friend of mine, but someone I followed for about two years now, I think, yeah. And her name is Aubrey Blanche. Now, Aubrey Blanche is something that you probably have never heard of. She is the math path. What is a math path? She's a math nerd and an empath. And we're going to dive into what that means into, uh, you know, as we dive into the presentation, presentation, the conversation. But when she's not being a math path or being the cool individual that she is, she's also the director of equitable design and impact the culture amp startup investor. She's an advisor and she is a questioner of things. She likes to redesign and reimagine systems and practices around us. So she doesn't believe in the complacency 
of the systems that govern us today. And her training is in social scientific methods and it's grounded in fundamental dignity and the value of every person. With that being said, welcome, Aubrey. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You say that you've been following me for two years and I think we had this like shadow, like mutual adoration society thing. I was like, I was like, you're so cool. I want to meet you. And, and when you wanted to meet, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I want an Oscar. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You, I, well, I would have felt the same way because the, the reason why I love everything about you and what you do is you are unapologetically you. And the audience knows my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. And whenever I come across someone who embraces every different layer of herself or, or themselves and are unapologetic about that, it, it always you know, attracts me to them because I feel like a lot of people find stories you know, themselves in other people's stories sometimes. And when we don't promote representation or uniqueness or the celebration of multiple intersections of identities, you know, we end up being in a white supremacist world, which is uh, dictated the world for centuries. And how lame, right? White supremacy world is super lame. But yeah, I think um, one of the things, and I'm like a huge fan of your book. I actually own two copies of it. I don't know why, but maybe just extra good luck. But for me, I have, um, I talk about myself as being a very liminal person, meaning like I'm biracial and bicultural and bisexual and I'm bipolar. And so, um, and I can talk about all of those different things, but it comes very much from sort of these ideas of indigenous feminism that you have to teach and know and, and learn from your own experience and your own ancestral experience. And so for me, um, you know, I grew up in a mix. I'm adopted, but then grew up in a mixed sort of white and native house. And so as I've grown in my consciousness, those kinds of frameworks were the only ones that made sense to me. And the piece that people on the podcast probably can't see is that most of my marginalized identities are invisible. Um, so I joke that I have Karen face, but the fact is I'm, I'm often white assumed. And, and so I think it's really important for me to constantly come out because of the privilege I have in my identities. And my hope is always that I've had people who have made me feel seen and that work I, you know, like I could call it different people, but that changed my life to feel seen for the first time in many ways across my journey. And so if I come out a lot, because if I can do that for someone else, like that's the gift that I owe others for having that done to me. And so that's why I talk a lot about my identity and I'm a little bit of an open book is because I just, I don't want to take the chance that someone else isn't seen when they could be. That feels like the biggest miss I could make as, as a leader or anyone could make as a leader. See, this is why we're kindred spirits because uh, I believe the same thing. And I often say identity is about connecting the visible to the invisible. I, I think I wrote it in a poem in the book. I don't know if I put the poem in the book, but it, a lot of times people relate to the visible parts of people's identities. And the irony of that is most of who we are, most of what informs identity is actually invisible. You know, people can look at me and might not know that I'm a Manchester United fan, for example, big part of my identity or, you know, LeBron James or any of these things or the other things. But how would you know that if you don't actually understand the person or be, you know, you, you be an empath, like you're, like you're, um, you know, discussing with your Monica, being a math path. But I want to go back. I want to go back yeah. to the early, early years. What was it like for you growing up? You had an interesting background. You're mixed. You know, you have a lot of buys in your life, you said. <laughs> so 
how did you find yourself and what were those growing pain moments for you? Yeah, so I think the first identity that like, if, if I rank my identities in terms of like how salient they are to me, being Latina or being sort of biracial, bicultural is, is like the thing that has probably defined my life more than anything. So I grew up in a really small town in Northern Michigan where the only other Mexican-American person that people that I had ever encountered were mostly, frankly, migrant workers. So it's from a very agricultural part of the world. And so, um, because I'm adopted, so that's an important thing that, and, and being transracially adopted is, there's not that much research on it, but small communities on the internet, we talk about how it, um, it makes your racial identity both really salient and really confusing. And so, I learned like in my house, we talked about like dad's Native American, mom is Irish and Belgian, Aubrey's Mexican, you know, American append to that, that I learned no hierarchy in terms of our heritage um, in my home because we all celebrated all of it. And then it was actually in like, I think sixth grade maybe where we did heritage day at school and we all were supposed to color like a flag. And let me just tell you, asking a 12 year old or a 13 year old to color a Mexican flag is like, not nice. You know how hard it was like, you know, <laughs> whatever. But the thing that really stood out to me was um, myself and my classmate that was adopted from Korea, when they grouped the flags, like the German kids and the Irish kids and the British kids, like we were off in the corner by ourselves as like the others. And I don't think the teachers meant to like other us in that way, but starting then growing up, people would like call me the Mexican when they like slam my locker door closed, or I would get told like, oh, you sharpen the pencils for the group project. And I was like, why me? And they're like, well, Mexicans do the service jobs. And so I experienced this like low level racism that because I didn't have any language for it, um, like I individualized it. And it wasn't until I got to grad school and I was at Stanford in this program um, called EDGE, Enhancing Diversity in Graduate Education for like the black and brown students. And because I had elected that I was Hispanic, I was put in this. And I started hearing stories that were similar or worse. And I started to be able to socialize that marginalization. Um, the other piece that's really important to this because I'm white assumed or white passing, depending on the language people use, is I got, like I said, I got teased all through school because I went to a very small school system where like everybody knew everybody's business. I went to college and stopped getting racism. Hmm. And that was when I learned like, oh shit, race is also about skin color. Because in my family, my, my daddy, who's he's, a, he's now a citizen of the Choctaw Nation, so they're based in Oklahoma. He's also white passing, like had red hair. So I didn't learn that race was like a phenotypical construct growing up. So I went through like the process of racialization and then in college learned about how I could like opt out of it because of my skin color. And like I did, I like basically played white for all of college because not getting racism was really nice. Yeah. And yeah. then when I went to grad school and I started developing this more social or group consciousness around it, it became impossible for me to play white anymore. Mm -hmm because I was denying something that was actually deeply important to me growing up, which was being Latina, being Chicana, like growing up with a native dad who did a lot of work. So yeah. he was a native American legal activist and stuff. So like I grew up listening to, uh, to 
you know, legal jurisprudence about membership law <laughs> and like that. So I think as an adult, I've now sort of pulled that all together and I'm just like, I'm super mixed. Yeah. Um, and that's really confusing, I think, for other people, but I found that it, I can use my story to teach people about race and racialization in a way that without those experiences, I wouldn't be as good of a teacher. No, it's the same, you know, for many of us in, in the field. I know for me, moving from Nigeria to a then being, uh, you know, the skinny Nigerian kid with a thick Nigerian accent, a French speaking country, an American international school going through puberty at 10 years old, I found myself being black in a white environment, the school in a black country, wanting to be white, right? Now, it's hard for me to, I didn't know that at the time. And as I'm writing, you know, I started to figure these things out, but that was what I was chasing because it wasn't, it was a small school, like you were saying. Um, and, you know, people at in middle school, they just tell you, you know, you, they point out your nose, your hair, everything that's wrong with you, the smell of your food and all these things. And you start internalizing these things. And I didn't know that I didn't like myself, but I didn't even know myself. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that, that those were things I started to understand as I got older, you know, when I, when I got, actually graduated from college. And it was in that moment of reflection that I was able to internalize and then figure out the identities that I, that I, that I suppressed. And, and, it, and it, it's interesting hearing you say that because I, I find the same or similar stories across the board with people that want to do that for others is that you, you come to that realization and you realize how harmful it can be because but then you start perpetuating a, a type of, uh, of system that really others uh, multiple people in a subtle way or sometimes in, the, in, in a very clear way. So uh, it, it's interesting how much of, of a role reflection plays into that. Oh, absolutely. I think like, and part of it for me, it just comes back to this question. And I think one of the reasons we sort of have a common language is we're both come from this third culture. Like, who am I, what am I is not a straightforward question. Like the word that I use from a racial context now is Chicana, because I think it both holds that I'm mixed. So I'm native and white, but also Latinx specifically in the American context. And that matters because had I been born, let's say in Mexico city, I would basically be white. Yes. Right, because of their, but because of the US dynamics around race, I just like, and we know that whiteness is inherently quote, I, I hate to call it a pure construct, but like it constructs itself that way. Mm -hmm. And so I've always never, when someone says like, you're white, I'm like, it's eh. <laughs> not quite correct. Like, am I white assumed, white passing? Do I have white privilege? Yes. Do I benefit from white supremacy? Yes. But that's different than taking on an identity that was always very clearly exclusive of me. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of identities, you came up with yours. You know, you said you're the math path. And, and I call myself a cultural translator. And I find that common with people like, hey, you know what? I'm going to fuse aspects of myself and come up with a term. So I'm curious about you. What led you down the path of calling yourself a math path? Yeah, so it was... Um, I actually worked with a branding agency um, that that came helped like come up with that concept. And the 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 drive there was I was like, I need a word to describe what I'm doing because I was doing a lot of media, I was doing a lot of teaching through um, through Atlassian, which is the company I was at before Culture Amp. But what I was realizing is that there was a lot of work that I was doing that wasn't actually Atlassian work. It wasn't just about 
thinking about DEI in terms of strategy in the workplace or coaching leaders, which is a thing I still do a lot of, but I needed a, a, a way to explain myself and to own parts of the, the brand and the reputation that I was building that were separate from the corporate construct. And that partially was because I needed to generate my own source of power outside of just being sort of a corporate employee because of the work that I was doing. Um, but also there were just a lot of things I wanted to say in the world that were under my own voice. And so um, I worked with this to come up with the branding and it just felt so correct that I've you know, now taken that on as part of my identity. The, the other reason why I think the math path is really important as separate from like Aubrey, because I am both, but in the same way that like, and I wanna be very clear, I'm not on this level, okay? But like Beyonce has like Sasha Fierce, which is like her performance. Yeah. Um, I think that when you have, like I have quite a few people that follow me online and it's really, really important not to build your sense of worth from like what other people are seeing looking in. And so I think the math path also helps me um, have like a different psychological place to put the like Aubrey writes op-eds and gets on stage and like people high five her and things like that. And I'm so grateful for every single person that listens. Like if I have a message that resonates with you, I'm grateful for that. But I think it, it helps you stay humble. We're like, Aubrey's still just the person who has to like wash her own socks at the end of the week. <laughs> like the math path doesn't do laundry. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's part of it is like, as, um, one of a group of people who have at least some influence in this space, I want to make sure that I'm never tagging my own self-worth to that external validation because that's ultimately going to undermine the work that I'm trying to do. And so having another alter ego that sort of is the flashy, shiny one, um, I think helps me keep my feet on the ground and be like the human being that I want to be. No, you human, you, as much as we need to humanize others, we need to humanize ourselves. That's one of the things I, I think is, is important in, in, in the work. But you touched on it there. You are at a place where you do have some influence in the field. And I, 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 I know it's, it's like, ah! It like, it like, it blows my mind and I almost feel silly because I'm just like, I'm just a person with some opinions. <laughs> and some, some very, very important opinions, especially in this culture defining moment. Uh, but you go, you graduate from college, right? You're in Stanford. What, what, at what moment after you graduated did you decide that this was the line of work you wanted to do? Because there must've been quite a journey for you to, to get to this place where you, you're act actively calling out systems and redesigning systems and promoting equity. Yeah, it was, it would have been like 2013, 2014 when this happened. And so I ended up dropping out of Stanford. Um, I, I got an MA, I was going for a PhD and I got, you know, a master's and I always tell people it's called, I call it a pity master's because it's like when you've done enough classes to like get a degree, but you're dropping out, they give you a piece of paper for your time. Um, so I'm like, I'm like, it's a fake degree y'all. Um, but, but really I, I went into tech, I got, I got a job doing business development writing um, with a company called Palantir Technologies. I was there for just a little over a year, but I left Stanford because of the like systemic inequities that I saw that I didn't think I could be successful. So I went to tech and I didn't know anything about tech at all. And I walked in and I was like, where are the Mexicans y'all? Like we're in California, like this is weird. And at the company I was at, and that company I don't think is actually that different from most other companies in terms of the like the meritocracy myth and things like that. I was going to meetups and I was hearing all this and I just wasn't seeing very many people like me and I was confused. And so I kept asking why. And then when I figured out that there was this myth 
of meritocracy and that systems were built on it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a structuralist. I'm a social scientist. Like I can fix these systems, just pure naive optimism. And I didn't even know that like DEI and cultural change was a career. I basically just... <laughs> Like no one told me that I could have friends. Um, so I basically wrote a job description and like a project plan and a Gantt chart and like key metrics for success. And I just like gave it to my boss and the head of HR. And I was like, here's some experiments we could do. And I was lucky enough that there was a director who was like, hey, if you think there's bias in our processes, like let's change that. And so I spent probably almost a year working like DEI as second shift, like most people who transition do and then because of the work that I was able to show and a little bit of change I was able to drive doing it in a volunteer capacity basically I moved over into being full-time working on those things and then in 2015 Atlassian called and kind of said do you want to set up our program and I was like I use all your tools every day sure this sounds really great and so yeah I think in a lot of ways I've I've I'm no longer naively optimistic. I used to be like, everywhere can have change. And now I'm like, nah, some shit we're just going to leave behind and people are never going to catch up. But I'm really lucky, especially at CultureAmp, to get to focus on really progressive work. So I've always been someone with like, what my dad says is a higher standard for the world than it has for itself, yeah. um, which is both perpetually frustrating, but also perpetually optimistic. That's right. And I think... Um, that's what I've learned across however many years I've been doing this now. Yeah. Oh my gosh, almost almost eight, eight, nine years I've been doing this work. Same for us, because I uh, I describe myself as an angry optimist. That is the term I use, and yeah, and, and I got that from uh, San Minaj because uh, he was you know a comedian, but he was talking about that because even when he does his comedy, he's always talking about the, the, the social commentary, and it, it, he was navigating that identity. It was like no. Nah, I'm optimistic, but I'm also angry. And it, it defined a lot of things for me. And it took me a long time for me to accept anger as a moniker, just because of the stereotype associated with that, you know, angry black person. But I wear that so much because it, you have to have in my, at least in my opinion, from my, what I'm doing, I have to have some sort of anger as, as to what's going on, but it doesn't turn me into a, a, a complacent or the, you know, pessimistic. It just fuels me more because like you're saying, the more you tell your story, you, you find that people are finding power into that. They might not say it publicly, but you know, they'll send the emails, right? They'll DM you. Or when you go to a speaking engagement, they'll, they'll be the ones to stay. And just the fact that you know there are people out there who don't have, uh, no, I don't wanna say don't have voices, haven't uh, gotten to their voices yet. Yeah. It's very important to stay that consistent. And uh, it is wary though. <laughs> and it, 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 is, it is draining. So. Did you find yourself being burnt out early or did you find a way to balance? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, the grief and the wariness that comes with the work as well. I think I only learned how to balance it. And I mean, I'm in a pretty crispy place right now. Like I I'm balanced, but tired, but no, I burned out really hard and ended up taking like a four month sabbatical. So when I was at Atlassian, even though I was pretty well supported and was doing great work there, there's just a level of secondary traumatic stress that you take on in this work that yeah. isn't avoidable if you're doing it right. Yes. And, and that's really hard. So I was at Atlassian for four and a half years. And then between um, my role at Atlassian and my role at Culture Amp, I ended up taking four months just to rest mm-hmm. and recover. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so um, silly to say that like, oh, your fancy corporate job is something that caused you to burn out. But because you're the emotional translator for the company. You're often the consciousness, you're a therapist, you're also a strategist. That what is asked of people in these leadership roles, especially, but really in all caring roles. Um, And then I think having to do that work in the Trump administration, right? Where we're we're responding to constant trauma um, is like, you even think about the last week, right? I think the most heartbreaking thing about the last week with right, all eyes on the Derek Chauvin trial, but then also Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, it's, it, there's no breaks. There's no breaks, there's no breaks for the community first. And so that means that there's really no breaks for the carers for those communities. Even if like, I'm, I'm not impacted the same way a black person is about that violence, like no question, but it doesn't mean that it's not secondarily traumatic for me in some way. And so, what I try to do is I I have, I just wrote a blog about this called, um, I think, Get Your Squad in Order. Yes. And what I mean by that is, and this comes from very basic, you know, organizing, um, but like it is radical to care for ourselves and care for others. And so I think we need to know, I have like an aggressive self-care routine that includes like a psychiatrist, a therapist, like trainer, um, but also that I have a community multiple communities that understand my experience. So that's, I have um, like a mental health group for Latinx people. Um, I have like a circles of other chief diversity officers who understand the specific stress of this role. And then I just have like a group of people, like I think you kind of live in this orbit of just people who are like, hey, I see you and what you're doing. And like, we have community. And I think that's also important because in this work, in so many other lines of professions, everybody's competing. But in this world, like, no, 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 I'm well if you're well and you're well if I'm well. And how can I contribute to that by being the right energy in the world? And so I think you need those concentric circles of care in order to survive this kind of work. Just wanted to stop by here before we get back to the episode. I wanted to let you all know that I do have a collective for people who are interested in developing their cultural competency skills, becoming more anti-racist. And it's a resource of things that you can do with your family, with your school, with yourself to work through your individual journey to become a better culturally competent leader. It's called UID Collective. And the link is in the show notes, but it's a mix of courses, 
It's a mix of resources, things you can download. And all you need to do is sign up as a member. It's a monthly membership. I'd love for you to check it out. Use it with your friends. Use it with your family. Use it with yourself. Okay? The link is in the show notes. It's called UID Collective. And it's for those of you that want to improve your cultural competency skills. Back to the episode. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. No, and I agree. I completely agree. But, you know, you're helping me with my segues here because you brought up competing. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Tragedy Olympics. <laughs> that is called a segue. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> this for a minute. <laughs> but no, seriously, uh, what, in your opinion, Tragedy Olympics, um, and for those listening, it's sometimes called, I, I call it Oppression Olympics. But what is that to you and why is it a problem? Yeah, so um, I always say that like no one gets a gold medal in the Tragedy Olympics. And what I mean is um, this this like game of like my pain is worse than your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even though I think there are actually some logical things like anti-Black racism is worse than any racism that I experience, right? It's more extreme in a way, but I just don't think it's helpful. Like we can hold both that like anti-Black racism is worse than what I experience in a totality sense. And also yelling that at someone who's trying to understand is actually counterproductive to dismantling white supremacy culture. And so I think what it's about is can we find, and my favorite video on this is strangely two white guys talking to each other. but uh, Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper talking about grief. It's this like 20 minute thing on YouTube. It'll change your life. Go listen to it. <laughs> but Stephen Colbert says like what, um, like he talks about like what tragedies of God are not gifts. And his point is, and how I try to live my life imperfectly, but you know, I'm human is when I have my own tragedy or pain, how do I use that to understand and connect with other people? Because the essence of the human condition is suffering at some point. And so if we get into the tragedy Olympics where we're trying to say my pain is worse than your pain, we cheat ourselves of the opportunity for empathy and connection. So even though I can't understand the specific pain that you've experienced in your life, I can understand pain. And so can I be a better ally and a better accomplice and just a better human to you by rather than comparing our pain by sharing it yeah no i i agree i i say um in a world of uh nuance we're governed by binary systems which is it's, it's there, there are very few things that are truly on the extreme and 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 only can only be and it can only exist in the extreme and a lot of times it's it's what's happening in, in the middle and that comparing of this versus that often, you know, defeats the purpose. And when it happens amongst marginalized groups, it becomes even worse because we know we, we live in a world where some of the extremists will look at that and say, ha, ah, see, <laughs> that's what I said. Look at, look at, look at them. I, you know, you know, Fox News is calling you out. Uh, but, <laughs> but even, even on the other side, liberal side, what is the CNN, CNBC, even doing it to, to the, the extreme conservatives or conservatives? Cause you know, it, it, I, I never want to group all conservatives in one group or all liberals in one group, all libertarians in one group, but that happens so much in our culture. And I'm, I'm a huge sports fan. So there's a huge debate culture as well, where it becomes this hot take thing. And in the, in the case of this hot take or clips or clickbait, you are dehumanizing people because some of the people saying these things don't even believe what they're saying. And they, to me, are the most dangerous because they know the effect and influence of what they can say in order to get clicks and not many people 
will do that reflection or research and they will blindly, or no, 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 not blindly. They will follow you in, in, in a different way. And by the way, for those listening, I decided not to say blindly because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a way of othering as well. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm constantly learning in my language, part of uh, learning different things. But they, they, you then start following these people without uh, understanding how to say, uh, how to think for yourself or critical thinking. And so that, that's, that's what I, I feel, I don't know if you agree or not. I think it's totally true. I just want to say, like, give you a high five because I also find getting ableist language out of my, like, we use it so often. The word I'm working on is crazy. Me too. Stop saying crazy. It's crazy and nuts for me. Crazy and nuts. Yeah, it's and knowing that it's ableist, and I actually have um, uh, mental health, so I'm bipolar, and so for me, it feels like oh crap, it's something I should be better at, but something again we have to have grace for ourselves on. I totally agree with you, and I think um, we're in this economy that's so much the attention economy now, such that the attention economy privileges the bullshitters. So there's a difference between a bullshitter and a liar because a liar knows the truth and is intentionally obfuscating. A bullshitter says whatever they need to, to, and so it's slightly different, like Donald Trump bullshitter, right? Or maybe he doesn't even have any concept of what the truth is. He's just saying whatever he feels like. But I think that's it is, is uh, people have these very binary hot takes. And like I said, I mean, not that I'm not guilty of this. So, right, everyone's a no, little bit- No, we do, I have to say, all of us, that's the point. This is not from a point of perfection. It's yeah. our culture, yeah. But, but it's like that always never dichotomy or like that binary. And so I think that's the reason that my identities are such a privilege and an advantage. So it both makes knowing who you are harder when you live in the middle of every spectrum. <laughs> but um, but it also gives me, I think, a heightened awareness of the way that binaries fail us. Yes. And so I feel like as someone who's privileged to have so much lived experience in the middle of spectrums, I also owe it to others to be gentle and understanding with them when that's something they're struggling with. And this goes back to the math path and the empathy side of it is, how do I constantly grow in my ability to feel compassion for others? So I'm a big Pima children like devotee because I think the more compassion I'm, cap I'm capable of expanding and holding, yeah. the better teacher and guide and supporter and enabler I am of all of the things that I believe in, yeah. which is yeah. like, how do we see these complex nuanced people as imperfect and hold compassion for them anyway? Because I think as much as, and this is goes back to um, what I, normative versus positive, so should versus is, is in this work so often we say like, well, people should be allies. They shouldn't need ally cookies. They shouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, I agree with you normatively, but like what we also know is that human psychology tells us that people do need allyship cookies. They do need positive reinforcement. They do need that. And so as someone who gets held up as a leader, I think that the the both the burden and the responsibility i think of it more as a responsibility of approaching that with compassion not playing the tragedy olympics trying not to communicate in binaries where i can that the the responsibility of me to do that is much higher than people who haven't opted into this work and so i take that pretty seriously and that like i try to earn any leadership opportunity that i've been given and i don't think that's a one and done or you get to run through the tape it's just like a, no you just keep running like this is an ultra marathon this is not a sprint not at all and and compassion is one of my my five core values and it, it's for exactly what you said and, and i do want to point this out to the audience 
you know, there's a difference with being nuanced and living at intersections and sitting on the fence. I, I think sometimes they get conflated. You, sitting on the fence and not having um, a thought is, is, a, is a privilege that can be very dangerous a lot of times. And that happened in the last election or the two, the two elections ago where ah, it doesn't, ah, I don't wanna, <laughs> you know, any of that. And, and that is something that I, I do wanna call out because being nuanced is understanding different lived experiences, but sitting in the fence is deciding not to opt into any <laughs> lived experience, right? There's a core difference with that. And that is gonna be a tweet. I didn't even know I was gonna say that, but it came to bam. <laughs> uh, but, but that was something that I, I wanted to, to point out because I, in these conversations, and I know you do, you do a lot of coaching and workshops. I do hear that conflated often. And I'm like, no, that's a big difference. It's a big difference. So, yeah. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about is your coaching, because I think that is one of the underestimated things, uh, you know, out of the amazing things you do, right? You, you've worked in tech, you know, you're, you're scientists, basically. Is you, this what you're scientists, social scientists, right? Social yeah, yeah. It's yeah. real science. Okay. I, always, I, I, <laughs> I didn't know what the term was. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I try to say I'm a Chicana scientist, which is like the capital S, meaning I use both Western science as well as indigenous science to inform how I see the world. Nice, nice. Well, the other part of your identity that is coaching, because you you just highlighted a big part of why, right? You you hold, you see it as a responsibility. But I want to give you a chance to talk about what you define as equitable leadership and what your coaching looks like, you know, because anyone listening could be a potential client and I want them to get yeah. a framework and understand that. Yeah, well, I'll talk about why I love coaching first and then I'll tell you a little bit about my methods. But I love coaching because one, I have this experience that allows me to speak to so many different life experiences. One, because I've paid attention to others, but also because I've paid attention to myself. And when you're coaching, you get to see these moments of like the light bulb going on. And because, you know, the coaching that I do is really around equitable leadership, I get the light bulb to turn on so that people can be more the people they intend to be. And there's kind of no greater gift in the world than being able to play a small role in, in helping people be the best version of themselves. And when I talk about equitable leadership, going back to what we talk, talked about, which is that I'm not talking about people being perfect leaders, but I'm talking about the constant practice and discipline of asking the question, how do I make this slightly more equitable? And so that can be everything from a corporate strategy, the way you're building your, but it can also be, you know, a small example of like how you give career advice. So like, this is a, a little example I'll give to everyone, which is I had a, a colleague who works in an amazing social impact um, firm uh, ask if I could talk to her daughter about getting uh, a career in DEI. And I said, I'd be happy to talk to her, but I also want to make sure that I'm providing an equitable thing. So when she emailed me, I said, I would love to help you. But before we schedule, I'd like you to identify an underrepresented classmate of yours who doesn't have a parent who can get them this career coaching. <laughs> and so all I did was I spent 20 minutes with each woman and they had different career questions, but that was a way for me to say, well, I recognize that you're getting this specialized coaching from an expert because you have a parent who's in a position of power. I'm not going to say screw you to that. I don't think that that's ultimately helpful. But what was funny is the, um, the mom, my fantastic, you know, sort of peer, she was like, oh my gosh, my daughter told me that you did that. I love that. I'm doing it from now on. Yes. 
And so I think there's also, there's coaching directly, which I do through my business and people can get at me at aubreyblanche.com if they're interested. We're running a program this summer that I'm really excited about. But, but really, I also try to think about coaching as modeling the behavior and acting as if I live in the world that I want to see. And that's very, it's very Adrienne Marie Brown, like emergent strategy concept. But I think that that's my favorite stuff of my job where like, you find out that one little tiny thing you did like had a ripple and you're just like, thank you for today yeah. for that. That I got to find out that there was something I did that made the world a little bit better than it was before. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's one that I share and it, I don't know, there are very few greater feelings than that, you know, and then just knowing that you played a small role in someone just either taking the baton or just realizing who they are and doing something else. And it, it is... It's so beautiful because we live in a world that's often trying to remind us of, you know, shame and, 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 and guilt in multiple areas or trying to tell you not to go as far as you can go because of X or not to be who you can be because of X. And when you find out that you play a role in someone just realizing the fullness of themselves and doing that for others, it's just, it's like, ah, yes. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's, we, I always say like, you can't really take a lot with you in this life, like in the short term, right? You know, you can move your couch or whatever, but like when you look back, like I believe when I look back in, if I'm blessed to have another 50 years, you know, the things that are gonna matter to me are not like, did I get that really cool chair from Crate and Barrel? Um, you know, it's, it's gonna be like, who did you, whose life did you touch and how did that make the world better? And so, to be in this career, as much as I talk about, you know, the trauma, the secondary traumatic stress, the compassion fatigue, these things that, that are real, like I get to go to work and the point is that I get to make the world better, or at least that's supposedly the point. Yeah. And that's the reason I love Culture Amp because I get to do it both at Culture Amp, like for the company, but also we empower, you know, more than 4,000 other companies using our tools and so many of them use it to push forward their DNI their and their DEI work. And so I can't think of a more privileged thing to be doing yeah. than being put in the space and being asked, like, how do you improve the world? And I think if we each have that, we each have our own special role to play, whether or not we've got the job title or not. Absolutely. And I, I want to I harp on privilege here because a lot of people, I, I feel, get defensive. And when I'm doing workshops, I, I, I say a couple things. One, it is possible to be simultaneously privileged and marginalized as there are nuance again. And also your privilege is something that you can use to make an impact. And I, I walk them through this model, I call it the PAA. So it's privilege, access, and action. And I have them list out as many privileges as they can mention and then highlight the access it gives them and then come up with an action item for that. Because, because it's, it's not, it, people keep asking, you know, when people always ask, what can I do, what can I do? I always tell them, well, let's come up with your PAAs because it's not, you don't need to do it the way another person is doing it because you might have different avenues, but you contribute into what you're doing and turning your privilege um, into action. And other people doing that is what is going to get that equitable uh, world that we want, but it's not you comparing yourself or being a perfectionist, all those things are tools of you know, white supremacy and will keep you in that state of inaction uh, you know, and understanding that or thinking that things are binary. And so I love that you keep mentioning the privilege, the privilege and acknowledging that because it's very important that we do acknowledge I've got so much, I really, something you just said like lit me up in when you were talking about how 
what you're doing might not look the same as what someone else is doing. And I think one of the things when we fall into binary thinking or we fall into, you know, falling prey to like white supremacy culture is right now, there's so much work. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. No, we, we can, it's all edited. It's um, but, but I think we fall into this idea where that's my dog. That's starting. You, you can think of that. This is all, this is not live. Not live. But, um, we're really, I think, I think um, we fall into this thing where we think that the way we're doing things is the only way. And I think Audre Lorde, I believe it was Audre Lorde who said everyone must find their work and do it. And I think that what our work is, is such a function of the privileges and oppressions that we hold that we spend a lot of time like as activists or even people who wouldn't ID as activists, but would identify as active in the mm -hmm. movement arguing with each other about what the best way forward is. And I'm like, you know what's happening? White supremacy is having a picnic while we have this argument. Exactly. And not to say that we shouldn't engage in critique of each other, but that the critique has to be grounded in compassion for each other and in a way that preserves the relationships that we have, because that is the thing that this movement has that, that like our enemy, which is white supremacy culture, not always just white people, right? We have to remember we're anti- yeah, Anyone can participate in white supremacy, anyone, any, yeah. And so I think that's one thing I just wanted to call out is this idea of like, we have to have respect that some people will work within institutions. So I, as someone who's, you know, working inside an institution, but also has sort of external power through my platform, it has different work to do than someone who is a community organizer. And I want to respect that work and I want to put gratitude on that work because without, you know, it's, I was telling someone, I was coaching um, a younger DNI professional who is struggling with um, like working inside an organization because he had been reading a lot of Malcolm X and, you know, and things like that. And he's like, and I'm like, well, here's the thing. Remember when Dr. King gave that an amazing speech and talked about sanctions on apartheid South Africa? Mm -hmm. A white person in a position of power had to catch that idea football and actually put the sanctions in place. And that doesn't mean that that person lives on the same level of contribution as Dr. King. They don't, but remember that somebody has to catch the football of our ideas or of our action. And so we are better placed in our movement if we have people at all places of power and in all different types of orientations towards the work. And so we have to, again, hold the non-binary idea that both we need to critique, but also we don't need to critique with violence against people who are walking the path with us because that's a distraction. And that's what white supremacy culture wants us to do is fight each other so we don't fight it. And I feel like that's a win I don't want them to get. Yes, no, and I love that you said we should be careful not to critique with violence. I haven't heard it put that way before. That is so, ah, that's so brilliant. Huh. Okay, well, how can people find you? Find me. Um, so my website, which you can definitely get at me is aubreyblanche.com. We try to keep it easy or mathpath.com. Both work. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram and all the, all the socials as at a D Blanche. Um, that's Blanche with an E on the end because it, it originally was a French word, although I sound very Midwestern now. <laughs> and no, I love that. We'll make sure we put that in, in the show notes. Um, and please be sure to give her a follow and you will not regret it. One last thing though, I ask all my guests this and it's my mission statement reframed as a question. So Aubrey, how do you use your difference to make a difference? 
I try to be honest about the liminality of my identities and use that to grow both empathy and compassion um, in myself and then try to share that out with the world. Boom! Perfect. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much. This is so good. You're so good at this. This is so good. Thank you so much for coming uh, on and sharing your ideas. Thank you for having me. It's it's been it's honestly an honor to be in conversation with you. So thank you for everything you do and thank you for giving me this space to share a little bit of what I'm up to. Likewise, likewise. And kings, queens, and royalty. Till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.